1: For generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
2: A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories.
3: Hello and welcome to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. My name is Joe McCormick. Uh, This episode is publishing on a Tuesday, which means we would normally have an all new core episode of the show for you. But my regular co-host Robert Lamb is a little bit under the weather this week. So instead, we are bringing you an episode from the vault while Rob recovers. So he should be back on mic soon, and we should be able to continue the series that we were in the middle of uh, before this week. So that was a series on childhood amnesia. More on that in the future. But for now, uh, we hope you enjoy this vault episode called The Stargazer and the Well, which originally published May 5th, 2022. Enjoy.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
3: And I'm Joe McCormick.
4: In today's episode, we're going to discuss a very old association between astronomy and wells. And uh, this ties into uh, various ancient anecdotes and also archaeological sites, Uh, basically getting down to this idea that um, if you have a well, if you have a deep pit, or even a long tube, that this could allow an individual to see starlight during the day. Had you ever heard of this, Joe?
3: No, I don't think, not before you brought this up. Yeah,
4: this is and, and this is one that there was more to it the, the more I kept looking into it. Um but instantly it's kind of a captivating idea if you know nothing about it because there's something about the two extremes in play here. The bottom of an earthly pit and the light of distant stars, you know? It it reminds me of that um that that far more recent quote by author Oscar Wilde in his play uh, Lady Windermere's Fan. Uh, which, uh, even if you're not familiar with that source, you may have heard this this particular quote quote We are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars."
3: <laughs> well, that's a great sentiment, and yeah, I guess I take it to mean that maybe one's character is defined not by the uh, not by where your body is, but by where your thoughts are aimed. Yeah. Now, one I guess starting place for this is that a lot of
4: the, especially more recent writings you see in allusions uh, referring. To this well astronomy uh, situation, we'll frequently point out that okay, well, you had um, you had Aristotle mentioning it in passing, and of course, Pliny the Elder mentions it. Um, so let's start with the the Aristotle quote. Uh, he does mention it kind of as an aside, and it is in chapter five of
3: the fourth century BCE text Generation of Animals. Okay, so this is going to be setting up the the relationship between looking out of a well or a tube and seeing the stars in the daytime. Right. So uh,
4: this is what Aristotle says, quote,
3: the cause of some animals being
4: keen-sighted and others not so is not simple but double. For the word keen has pretty much a double sense, and this is the case in like manner with hearing and smelling. In one sense, keen sight means the power of seeing at a distance. In another, it means the power of distinguishing as accurately as possible the objects seen. These two faculties are not necessarily combined in the same individual. For the same person, if he shades his eyes with his hand or look through a tube, does not distinguish the differences of color either more or less in any way, but he will see further. In fact, men in pits or wells sometimes see the stars. But uh, one of the, the curious things here, though, and this is ultimately the, like, the hard fact that we'll keep coming back to and thinking about this, is that during the day, we cannot see the stars. Um, right, uh, not not you know not with the, the naked eye, and uh, I think I've read that like the the brightest star, not counting the sun, of course, the brightest star in the night sky would have to be something like five times as bright for the human eye to see it during the day. So this is one of those things that just right from the get go here, uh, it's not going to match up with any experience out there, though, if you have had the experience of standing in a pit and looking up and seeing the night sky uh, during the daytime, uh, certainly write in and tell us more about this. But um, but for the most part, it, yeah, it goes against everything we expect to be true from our modern perspective. And yet we see multiple references to this being a reality. And granted, a lot of these are secondhand Uh, in in the nature of a lot of these ancient uh, texts. Uh, For instance, Pliny the Elder, who's kind of a a champion of the the second or third-hand account of the natural world, he chimes in on this a little bit in uh, Natural History. Quote, the sun's radiance makes the fixed stars invisible in daytime, although they are shining as much as in the night, which becomes manifest at a solar eclipse, and also when the star is reflected in a very deep well. Oh, well, he's he's doing really good up until that very last part. (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's something you. I mean, because first of all, a lot of this, a lot of the times, we're talking not talking about like you know just pure folklore here. We're talking about very learned individuals of their age, individuals who who uh, you know often knew something or a lot concerning uh, astronomy during their time, and they're chiming
3: in on this as if it is true or said to be true. Well, I mean, he is absolutely correct that the stars are still shining during the daytime, just like they are at night. It's the, pro- the problem is simply that their light is drowned out by the glare of the sun. So mm-hmm. it's not as if, I mean, you, you might assume if you were just going by intuition that the stars turn off their lights during the day or something, right. or th- you know, that th- they somehow disappear. No, the- they're still there. They're always there. We just can't see them because there's too much light from this other light source. Yeah, so so almost everything yeah, about that statement is corrected, but at the end,
4: uh, he, he loses it. Now, one of the sources I was looking at for this is a 1953 paper by Aydin uh, uh, Sayali, and this was uh, republished in 2007 by the Foundation for Science, Technology, and Civilization. So Sayali, major Turkish science historian, so, so uh, important that he's actually on a banknote. You can... If you look him up on, like, Wikipedia, you can see uh, see his face on currency. Wow. Uh, but but this is a very nice little overview of of this concept and touches on, you know, the fact that it not only pops up in the history of astronomy, but it also pops up in folklore and literature of various different cultures. And the idea is basically what we've been discussing, that one may stand at the bottom of a well— or you know, something similar like a great pit or some sort of natural formation of caves. And if you look up, you can glimpse the stars during the day. And Sayali writes that sometimes this is of just a vague tidbit without any specifics, like it's just you know alluded to, oh, one can do this and this has been done. But other times it's connected to specific individuals and times. So the author mentions several more examples here and I'm gonna, gonna touch on them here. So first of all, he points out that Greek astronomer uh, Cleomedes says that the sun appears larger when seen from the bottom of a deep cistern because of the darkness and the moisture of the air, though he does Mm. not make mention of actual, what we'll discuss in a bit, actual observation wells, uh, some sort of a well or deep shaft in the earth that is used, uh, that is either built or repurposed or used for um, looking at the stars. Another individual he points to is the, uh, the, the writings of Islamic philosopher Abu Barakat al-Baghdadi, who lived 1080 through 1164 or 1165 CE. And um, uh, this individual actually wrote a text titled, On the Reason Why the Stars Are Visible at Night and Hidden in Daytime. And in this, he contends that it comes down to illumination of part of the atmosphere immediately above the observer. Uh, And he does not mention observation wells specifically either. And then you have Leonardo da Vinci also contending that the atmosphere is dense and full of moisture particles that, during the daylight, reflect radiance to obscure the stars. So, um, again, uh, there's another example. Da Vinci's not talking about observation wells. But Sayali contends that all three of these lines of thinking, quote, would seem to be in agreement with or even inspired by the claim that from the bottom of a well or in a tall tower— Uh, which is to say at the bottom of a tall tower, uh, which would prevent the illumination of a portion of the atmosphere immediately above the observer, stars become visible in daytime.
3: Okay, so I think I'm catching on to the intuitive current that's driving this. Might it be something like this? I can see the stars in the nighttime when things are dark. Therefore, darkness is what allows me to see the stars. So if I get down at the bottom of a well or the bottom of a tower where I can look out through the top the dark environment that i have enclosed myself in will somehow like r- create the conditions of night where i can normally see the stars is is it something like that it seems to be again this is something where it's, it
4: again this is it's it, this is not true this is not this is not seem to be exactly what happens uh, when one is standing in a pit looking up standing in a well etc so we can't we you know we can't break down the exact process of this because this is not a reality but
3: right. uh yeah this seems to be what the, the basic argument seems to be like if you can as closely as poss- possible approximate nighttime during the day for your local self and then look up at the sky maybe then you would see the stars except that doesn't actually happen right <laughs> but again important knowledgeable
4: individuals were writing about this and repeating it signal boosting it if you will uh, you have, you know, ultimately had the likes of, say, Roger Bacon uh, mentioning it, seeming to be familiar with the concept. And multiple Islamic authors, according to Sayali, reference it. And um, and that some of these points, these specific observation wells, not just in the generality of this being a thing. So a few examples of this. Maraga um, Observatory, founded in 1257, uh, was said to be an observation well. But Sayali thinks this may be a mistaken reference. Uh, not to the observatory, but to caves beneath the observatory that, quote, do not so far as is known form any vertical well. Another one he mentions is the uh, Jaja Bay um, Marasa of uh, Kishir Anatolia, founded in 1272. Uh, This was used as an observatory and was said to have an observation well formed via a circular hole cut in the roof of, of the dome of the Madrasa building and that this was for daytime star observation. Now, on this count, Sayali writes that there is evidence of there having been a well here, but, uh, but first of all, it was probably not dry. Uh, and uh, this could mean that if it was used for, uh, as an uh, as astronomical aid, it was so that one could look at the reflection of the sky in the water, and there are references apparently to this practice.
3: Oh, okay. So this connects to, I think, the way that Pliny in particular phrased it, as opposed to Aristotle, uh, because Pliny said that uh, you could see the stars reflected in a very deep well. And so I'd wonder there that there might be different... Optical effects at play. If you're not standing in the bottom of a well, looking up trying to see the stars in the daytime, but looking down at the water in a dark well to see if it's "quote unquote" reflecting the nighttime stars, even during the daytime.
4: Right. Yeah. So I think there could. It seems to be the case where you're dealing with with uh, different um, reported phenomena becoming confused with each other. You know, like yeah. can you can you look up from uh, from the bottom of a well and see the sky? Yes. Can you see stars? Uh, well, yes, potentially, if it is nighttime. Uh, but but then that can be you know crossed into something else. Likewise, you could have a situation where, where the reflection in the well, in the well water, could be used to see the stars at night, but that doesn't mean you can see them in the daytime. Now, a third example that Sayali brings up is the Istanbul Observatory, founded in 1579. And it did have, this particular site apparently did have an observation well or tower and there is confirmation of this in both Turkish and European sources. However, the observatory was demolished not long after its founding. So, uh, Sayali so says it might never have been used or, we, you know, we just, there are no records of it being used. Uh, I saw some different dates on this. Perhaps it might have been founded in 1577, but it seems like it was destroyed in something like 1580, just a you know, very short period later. And the destruction was possibly due to religious opposition to astronomy. Mm. So, Siley so mentions that there's a 1630 uh, mention of um, observers and students glimpsing the stars in the daytime from the bottom of a very deep well in Coimbra, Portugal, and there are also accounts from Spain, apparently. And then we have uh, an individual by the name of Urhard Weigel, a court mathematician to Duke Wilhelm IV of Bavaria. He had a house built in 1667 in Jena, and it was said to have a, quote, slanting tube built into the wall in order to allow the
3: daytime observation of the stars. You shared with me a painting of all Earhart here. And this guy is such a mood. He's, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't even know how to describe this. He, he, I mean, he looks like a very sensitive boy uh, posing for a photo with his dog, you know, like pointing to the dog, (laughs) except it's just like a big table of mathematical figures. Yeah, yeah.
4: My first thought was like, here is a a man who loves his maths. Uh, If you look him up on, uh, say, Wikipedia, you'll see this particular painting. There are other images of him that are not, that don't strike the same uh, um, tone, uh, but I do really
3: like this painting. It looks like he's like doing his little uh, equations and he's going, who's a good boy? Now, Sayali also
4: mentions that the Paris Observatory, founded 1667 uh, through 1675, featured a vertical hole which, via the caves below, formed a 55-meter deep well. Quote, it was said that Cassini, shortly after the foundation of the observatory, considered the possibility of its use for daytime observation of the stars as one of the brightest stars of the constellation Perseus, he said, would come within the field of view of the well in approximately 40 years. Now, this is interesting to, to keep in mind, talking about the field of view of the well, uh, because I think this can, be, this can be telling, given some of the uh, analysis out there. Uh, Cassini apparently used the well himself and had another well built, uh, but uh, the, around this time, Sayali says, astronomical advancements may have made venturing down to a well just increasingly obsolete. Um, however, Sayali mentions that there were rumors that a janitor at the observatory had a side hustle of taking people down in the, into the pit to glimpse the stars. <laughs> what, what is this, the 17th century? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure exactly when this, uh, when the janitor's tale, this may may have come later. Oh, okay. Yeah, but um, it, it sounds very uh, Edgar Allan Poe, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, one more example that Sayali mentions is the... Um, Munster Observatory in Austria, founded 1748, that has a 59-meter-deep well said to have been used as an observation well uh, as well.
3: Well, given all of these uh, examples and, and anecdotes from history of people saying they could do this or building facilities in which to do this, I'm starting to have my doubts. I'm like, wait a minute, can you actually? I I don't know. I mean, like, would all these people be building starlight tubes and and observation wells and towers and stuff and talking about this all the time if there weren't something to this story? I'm I, I I'm having I'm I'm doubting myself.
4: Yeah, I, I had the same experience with it, and and Syali is basically discussing the, the same thing. He's like. It would just be strange if this idea persisted for so long and people did all these things if there wasn't something to it, if there wasn't some factual basis to the whole enterprise. Uh, Because, you know, dudes are incorporating this into their house plans, you know. (laughs) But he he does point out yeah there were there were there were certainly skeptics as well including Alexander von Humboldt who we've oh. uh, we've discussed
3: on the show before old friend of the show uh, he, the subject of a really great uh, biography by Andrea Wolff called The Invention of Nature I highly recommend very interesting I'd say uh, von Humboldt was uh, very important for promoting a kind of uh, a a a total view of science that kind of uh, that, that connected all of the natural world together into a uh, a vast system of interlocking causes and effects and viewed nature not just as discrete entities of here's this animal and here's this plant but as an ecology as a a, mm-hmm. a system of interactions in which everything affected every other thing.
4: Yeah. And so he comes along and, you know, he's evidently he's read about this and he's familiar with the concept, but then he's, he's, he says, well, I, okay, I spoke with, with chimney sweeps. I spoke with miners. Uh, I, I, uh, I've spoke with other people who had ventured down into, um, into conditions just like this. And apparently he sought those conditions out himself and he did not experience this. He was not able to see the stars. No one he spoke to had direct experience of having seen the stars this way. Uh, and, and he's just one of uh, – there are a few other historical critics of the notion as well that Sayali mentions, um, but, I, but I think Alexander von Humboldt probably the, – the, this is the, one of the more robust ones uh, coming along where he's just saying, yeah, nobody I spoke to has actually experienced this. And, uh, and and ultimately, Sayali, even though he's like, he, again, he's thinking there's, you know, people have been doing this and circulating this idea. There, there has, is there absolutely nothing to it. He does stress that, quote, although such wells were connected with observatories, there is no evidence that such observatories were systematically made and utilized by astronomers. So the whole practice could have been, you know, largely theoretical, uh, even, in, you know, in the ultimate basis for it could ultimately be more imagination than anything. Uh, but he thinks that the whole enterprise might have been connected more to focusing on particular areas of the of the sky, so again mm. come think think about like what this would mean to stand at the bottom of a well and look up through the the circular um, aperture of the well and behold the the sky uh, behold the sky at night to see the stars you would it would in a sense, you know, it would limit what you could see. It would uh, take that just overwhelming starscape and limit it to just a single circle
3: of observation. Yeah, maybe if you were trying to focus on particular stars as they pass through during the night or something, I I don't know. And then
4: likewise, I guess if you had a similar setup and you were looking at stars reflected in the water, you could, and it was very still water and, and the reflection was just right, you could have something similar going on. Um, But in terms of yeah, basically anybody who, who comes up against this idea of it being somehow a way to to see the stars during the daylight, uh, every n- nobody ag- agrees that this is possible. Uh, for instance, this is this is brought up in the book uh, Bad Astronomy by Phil Plate, for example, uh, and then he also points out that Charles Dickens wrote of it as well, uh, and he says that he's never heard a decent explanation as to why this would work. Well, one nice takedown of uh, of the whole uh, idea came from the Reverend uh, William Frederick Archdahl Ellison in the Journal of the British Astronomical Association in 1916, writing, quote, A very little scientific reasoning, even without experiment, will be sufficient to dispose of it. For what is it which hides the star in the daytime? It is merely the glare of our atmosphere illuminated by the sun's rays. As the atmosphere extends to a height of 50 miles or more above the Earth's surface, a shaft or chimney 100 to 200 feet high could do but little to take away that glare. And anyone who has ever actually looked up from the bottom of such a shaft, as I have from the bottom of a colliery, uh, this is a a British term, by the way, um, a coal mine and the buildings and equipment associated with it, 900 feet below the surface, must have been struck not by the darkness of the little disk of sky visible, but by its dazzling brilliance. And this yeah. is something that people come back to. Is like if you actually seek out this experience of gazing up through a shaft at the, the at uh, the, the 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 sky at the, the daytime sky, it's the sky's not going to be
3: dark. It's going to be super bright. It's going to be overwhelmingly bright. No, I, I totally agree with that. That that seems right to me. I do have a, a counterposing idea. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you were able to build a tower, like some of these supposed observation towers, that extended up beyond the top of the atmosphere, <laughs> then that might actually work. Ooh, I did not see anyone discussing
4: this idea, this idea that through some sort of futuristic mega project, we might be able to make the, the daytime a well observatory possible.
3: Yeah, like you build a space elevator and it's just, it's a (laughs) tube going up beyond the atmosphere. Even then, I'm not positive that would work. I think it probably would. Uh, I guess it might depend on where the sun is at the moment relative to, like, is any of the sunlight shooting down in there? Mm-hmm. So m- many commentators also speak to this whole notion
4: uh, being predicated on a misunderstanding of what a telescope does, certainly in the, the later cases and later circulation of the idea. And that, you know, ultimately it's focusing more on the tube
3: rather than the lenses, which are vital to the, the, the workings of a telescope. Right. Not understanding that the purpose of the telescope is to gather light from a, from a wider surface and then project that down into your eye to increase the resolution. One such
4: commentator was Patricia O'Grady, who wrote on the subject in 2002 in a paper titled Thales of Miletus, the Beginnings of Western Philosophy and Science. Uh, she contends that such wells were used at night as a means of isolating portions of the night sky for consideration and study. Quote, descending into a well and peering up the extent of the well would isolate areas to be observed, and the rim of the well, being similar to that uh, to the tube about which Aristotle wrote, would be a sort of "quote unquote" telescope, but lacking magnification. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, it, it's there's so much more to this than than I expected, but it seems like we can think of observation wells as being a mix of secondhand accounts, signal boosted by important writers and thinkers during their times backed up by hypothetical models as well as the seeming at least limited use of such wells as a means of isolating portions of the night sky for study uh, at night.
3: Yeah, that that all seems reasonable to me. I'm still hung up on the idea that there could also be some kind of Garbling of a report of an optical effect that somebody got from looking down at the sunlight reflected in water in a dark well, and then Mm, maybe ripples in the water or something. I've never tried it, so I don't know what that would be like, but I could imagine that could look like many points of light instead of one. Yeah, that's a good point.
4: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free
3: samples.
4: Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
0: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
3: Now, Rob, it's funny you mentioned this book by Patricia O'Grady about uh, Thales of Miletus because the other half of this coin, the idea of uh, a stargazer and a well, connects very directly to a famous anecdote about this, uh, this philosopher. So Thales of Miletus was a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher who lived from the late 7th century to the mid-6th century BCE. He was one of the famous seven sages of Greece, uh, and was re- he was revered by other ancient philosophers and writers as, in many ways, kind of the the primary patriarch of wisdom. He was thought to be, in a sense, the first philosopher, and in more recent centuries he's been seen by some as, quote, the father of science, though I think both of those designations are Uh, A good bit overstated, though Thales was a very interesting figure going to the idea of him being the, the, quote, father of science. I I would say in an informal way, there were empirical observations and experiments and deterministic theories of nature, of course, all going on before Thales, no doubt. But he was famous in ancient Greece for appealing to natural material causes rather than ad hoc mythological explanations when trying to understand nature and, and the world. So, like many ancient Greek philosophers from Pythagoras to Socrates, we actually have no surviving copies of any text by Thales himself. So, if he wrote anything down himself, we no longer have it. The only sources we have for his life and his work are what other people wrote about him, which of course makes it complicated to know with much certainty what he actually said and believed. So, Everything that follows that we're going to say about Thales comes with the, the major caveat that it is based on secondary sources, often writing much later than Thales' own lifetime, uh, because it's all we have. Thales was known for wisdom in uh, not just uh, what we would later call science, but in many domains, including in, in mathematics. He was famous for for bringing uh, uh, Egyptian geometry to, to Greek thought and for philosophy and politics. He, he was uh, given credit for the maxim, know thyself, which I have to say, I find one of the most powerful aphorisms of all time. You know, know thyself is... Two words long, and it really hits you. It's like a wrecking ball. Like it mm-hmm. manages to be simultaneously empowering and humbling. And there's a whole rich tradition of other philosophers simply trying to explain what they think is meant exactly by the statement "Know thyself." Is it a? Is it an admonition to know your place and be humble in the face of the gods? Is it a? Uh, is it a warning to know your own limitations? Is it an exhortation to uh, to deeper philosophical? Philosophical understanding to understand what you are in a way. Maybe it's all of these things.
4: Yeah, that's a, it's a great uh, navel gazer. That one. Uh, <laughs> the more the more you think about it, the the slipperier it becomes.
3: Now, at this time, there was not much of a division between what we would today call science and what uh, the ancient Greeks would call philosophy. It was it was sort of all the same thing. It was the, the pursuit of knowledge. But uh, I, I guess the more scientific version of ancient Greek philosophy would be the kind that focused on explanations of the natural world and appealing to natural causes. A lot of the science that Thales believed in ...has not exactly held up to later scrutiny. Uh, for just one example, he uh, was known for arguing that earthquakes were caused by the fact that the continents, the the land on which we walk, is actually part of a great, a great disk that floats on water. And sometimes the continents or the disks on which the continents rest are rocked by waves in the underlying cosmic ocean... Uh, for ancient accounts of this belief of Thales, uh, I want to go back to, actually, uh, Patricia O'Grady, the source you mentioned earlier in her book on Thales. um She, for example, quotes Seneca, who says, The cause of earthquakes is said to be in water by more than one authority, but not in the same way. Thales of Miletus judges that the whole earth is buoyed up and floats upon liquid that lies underneath. The disk is supported by this water, he says, just as some big heavy ship is supported by the water, which it presses down upon. Hmm. And elsewhere, Seneca actually mocks Thales for his beliefs. Uh, he says, The following theory by Thales is silly. <laughs> for he for he says that this round of lands is sustained by water and is carried along like a boat. And on the occasions when the earth is said to quake, it is fluctuating because of the movement of the water. It is no wonder, therefore, that there is abundant water for making the rivers flow since the entire round is in water. Reject this antiquated unscholarly theory. There is also no reason that you should believe water enters this globe through cracks and forms bilge. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I will not believe in the bilge, Seneca. You've convinced me. But also to continue with the ocean theme, Thales quite remarkably believed that the entire basis of matter was water, And it can be difficult to parse exactly what he means by this, but uh, I think it's commonly interpreted to mean that all matter is in some way a form of water. So much like liquid water can turn into vapor uh, or it can freeze into a solid ice cube, then it can take on other forms as well. And in fact, it does take on all the forms we see in the world. Every piece of matter is some type of water or is in some way derived from water. And of course this is wrong, but it does wander kind of close to a profound truth that would be discovered much later, which is that as fundamentally different as all the substances of the world, blood, magma, wood, air, as different as all these things might seem, They're actually made of exactly the same fundamental building blocks, not water, but the subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, electrons, in different quantities and arrangements. Mm. So he was wrong about the water part, but I do think it's still a rather profound hypothesis that at bottom, all matter is made of the same stuff. Now, coming back to the uh, designation that some authors have used for for Thales as, quote, the father of science— I think one of the big stories leading to that designation like I know this uh was uh there was a piece at some point that Isaac Asimov wrote about this uh the 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 connecting point here is that there are reports from the ancient world that Thales did occasionally make testable predictions that proved correct, such as in matters of astronomy, where the historian Herodotus claims that Thales correctly predicted a solar eclipse in advance with profound geopolitical implications for, for an ongoing war with, uh, between the, uh, the Medes and the Lydians. So to, uh, to fill out this story a bit, I'm, I'm going to uh, describe and quote from Herodotus, the translation by A.D. Godley, so, uh, a bit of background. Herodotus tells us that uh, at some point in history, a, a tribe of nomadic Scythians escaped some trouble in their own lands, and they, they escaped into the territory of the, uh, the Medeans or the Medes, who were ruled by a king named Syaxares. The Scythians asked for mercy, and Cyaxares granted it, and even uh, gave over some Median young men to the Scythians to, to sort of like live with them and learn their language and to learn archery from them. But there came a day when uh, the Scythians returned from a hunt with nothing to offer their new king, and Cyaxares, being short-tempered, he took this, the, their, their lack of uh, game as an insult, and he gave them a really bad chewing-out. I think the direct quote is he treated them contemptuously. Mm. Uh, so in revenge for being dressed down, some of the Scythians took the, the young Medes, their, their pupils, and killed them and dressed their bodies and presented them to the king as if they were animals killed in a hunt. Then they immediately fled the domain of the Medes and went to the domain of a king named uh, Alyades of Sardis. All right, this is already spiraling out of control. This is a bad situation. Right. So Saixaris was tricked. And indeed, he did eat the flesh of his young countrymen, thinking it was wild game. And uh, after he found out, he wasn't very happy about it. And he went to Aliades and said, hey, these guys made me do cannibalism. <laughs> you need to give them over to me. Uh, so now I'm just going to quote from the Herodotus translation. After this, since Alyades would not give up the Scythians to Cyaxares at his demand, there was a war between the Lydians and the Medes for five years. Each won many victories over the other, and once they fought a battle by night. They were still warring with equal success when it happened, at an encounter which occurred in the sixth year, that during the battle the day was suddenly turned to night." Thales of Miletus had foretold this loss of daylight to the Ionians, fixing it within a year at which the change did indeed happen. So when the Lydians and Medes saw the day turn to night, they stopped fighting, and both were the more eager to make peace. Hmm. And apparently they did make peace by securing a a marriage between uh, between the children of the two kings. Happy ending. There you go. Though I have to imagine there was a good bit of like, hey, remember when your dad did cannibalism and then my dad helped the people who made him do it?
4: There was still, probably still some bad blood. But, you know, you get a nice wedding ceremony in there. Uh, yeah. You know, it's well catered. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, calm a lot of the waters.
3: Yeah. So, anyway, uh, the story, again, is that Thales predicted this solar eclipse that interrupted the middle of a battle. Uh, he predicted it in advance. Later scientists have worked out that this must be a reference to the solar eclipse of May 28th, 585 BCE, because that's the only one within the right time frame that would have been visible at the place in question. And that does all work out. But if it's true that Thales predicted the eclipse in advance, this is an absolutely extraordinary claim. And I think a lot of modern scholars have doubts about this story. So we know lunar eclipses, where the shadow of the Earth passes over the face of the moon these have been predicted going way way back long before thales the court astronomers of ancient china and ancient babylon uh, were able to figure out these patterns and draw up tables allowing them to predict lunar eclipses but solar eclipses where the moon passes directly between the earth and the sun Blocking out the sunlight, these are much much harder to predict, especially because they are localized to specific vantage points on Earth's surface. I mean, there there are solar eclipses all the time, but living wherever you do, you don't see most of them. They're they're on some other part of the globe. Yeah,
4: like if you've scout tried to scout one out for yourself, you may have encountered this situation where you know someone's like, "Hey, there's a solar eclipse coming up," and you're like, "Great! When can we see it?" And it's like, "Well." Uh, on this date, if we're in Arkansas or parts of Texas, right? We, <laughs> uh, there's the
3: solar eclipse coming. We have to travel to Baffin Island. Yeah,
4: that sort of thing. But that that being said, I mean, if you have the ability to to go witness a solar eclipse under safe circumstances, absolutely do so because
3: it's uh, it's wonderful. Oh, absolutely! Yes, it, it, it is worth it. It's one of the most magical experiences of my life. Now, the first solar eclipses that we know for sure were predicted in advance came after we had much better astrophysical theories in hand. Uh, This would be in the early 18th century. The first case where we know for sure that someone accurately predicted a solar eclipse was on May 3rd, 1715, when English astronomer Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet fame Uh, built upon the scientific revolution unlocked by Isaac Newton's theory of universal gravitation. Halley was a friend of Newton's and he used Newton's new uh, theories to accurately pinpoint an eclipse that would be visible in London. And I think he got it right within a margin of about four minutes. Oh, nice. But Halley's prediction and all subsequent solar eclipse predictions, they require a lot of information that was, as far as we know, not available in ancient Greece. And, Unfortunately no writings of Thales exist today as i said and Herodotus does not bother to mention the method by which Thales made this prediction uh, i don't think other authors who mention this this story share any any further insights either Uh, and so we, and we also don't know what the level of precision of this prediction would have been though. Uh, though Herodotus does say that it took place that year, which makes me wonder if it's possible Thales just said there will be a solar eclipse sometime this year and got extremely lucky, but ultimately we don't know. We don't know what was going on here. If he actually did make the prediction and it was correct, did he just have an amazing stroke of luck or did he have some kind of incredibly advanced, uh, uh type of uh, knowledge about astrophysics that nobody else at the time had and he left no record of it and as
4: with the observation wells we're we're dealing with you know secondhand accounts and uh, and, and vague references here
3: right so also we don't even know for sure it's true that he made this prediction though mm-hmm. it seems to be a widely attested story and we do know the eclipse did happen
0: mother's day is right around the corner and in true she pivots fashion
3: Now, I was reading about a few other uh, scientific uh, contributions of Thales. One source I was looking at was by W.K.C. Guthrie, called A History of Greek Philosophy, Volume 1, The Earlier Pre-Socratics and the Pythagoreans. Uh, This was Cambridge University Press, 1962. And uh, Guthrie collects a lot of observations. He he writes that Thales made, made... uh, gave guidance about the relative usefulness of different constellations for sea navigation, pointing out that the uh, the minor bear, uh, the little bear constellation, was better than the great bear for finding the pole, and this story was related by Callimachus. Apparently the use of uh, the minor bear was already in practice by the Phoenicians, and Thales showed why it was better than the Greek standard of Ursa Major. He apparently also is said to have used geometry to measure the dimensions of the pyramids and, uh, and to show how you could calculate how far away a ship at sea was. And in summary, writing about the Thales' reputation in ancient Greece, uh, Guthrie says, quote, Once he had achieved in the popular mind the status of the ideal man of science, there is no doubt that the stories about him were invented or selected according to the picture of the philosophic temperament which a particular writer wished to convey. And so Guthrie goes on to describe an example of what he calls this, uh, quote, mutually canceling propaganda, which is the contrast between the story of the olive presses and the story of the fall into a well or into a pit. And these are given respectively by Aristotle and Plato. I'm going to start with the story of the olive presses, which we have from Aristotle. So uh, this is in Aristotle's Politics, translation by Benjamin Jowett. I'm just going to read directly. Aristotle says... There is the anecdote of Thales the Miletian and his financial device, which involves a principle of universal application, but is attributed to him on account of his reputation for wisdom. He was reproached for his poverty, which was supposed to show that philosophy was of no use. According to the story, he knew by his skill in the stars, while it was yet winter, that there would be a great harvest of olives in the coming year. So, having little money, he gave deposits for the use of all the olive presses in Chios and Miletus, which he hired at a low price because no one bid against him. When the harvest time came and many uh, were wanted all at once, and of a sudden he let them out at any rate which he pleased and made a quantity of money. Thus he showed the world that philosophers can easily be rich if they like, but that their ambition is of another sort. (laughs) And you notice at the beginning that Aristotle said this, uh, this financial device, he says, involves a principle of universal application. So Aristotle is actually saying, you know, the thing that, uh, that Thales is doing in this story is a well-known move. It's called monopoly. Uh, it's the exploitation of a monopoly is a standard, well-known commercial and political practice. And he gives examples having to do with, like, cornering the iron supply in a local area or something. Of course, the principle is if you're the only person selling something and it's in demand, then you can set whatever price you want. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, when a smart person figures out how to create a monopoly, how to be the only person offering a good or a service that is needed, they will use this to their advantage. I guess with the caveat of unless they're a philosopher who is above worldly concerns and will only gouge to make a point.
4: <laughs> yeah, I love this. It's like there's like, hey. Uh, um, hey, Thales, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I could do that if I wanted to. Here. And he proves himself. And then it goes back to whatever he was doing beforehand.
3: Right, yeah. So it portrays Thales as worldly and full of potential for practical cunning, but simply lacking interest in financial gain unless it's to own the haters.
4: (laughs) All right, so that's one vision, one invoked vision of Thales. Uh, What's another one?
3: Well, here's where we come back to the uh, the idea of the stargazer in the well. So, Plato tells this totally different story of Thales. This takes place in Plato's Theaetetus dialogue. And if you've ever taken a, a logic or a philosophy course that tried to define the word knowledge, you might have encountered the Theaetetus because uh, I believe this is the one where Socrates builds up to a definition of knowledge as something like true belief with an account, sometimes paraphrased as Justified true belief. So, under this definition, to know something, to actually have knowledge, it means you have one, a belief, two, which is true, because if you believe something but it's false, that's not knowledge, and three, Uh, it it is something of which you are aware of a warrant for believing. So if you believe something and it turns out to be true, but you had no good reason for believing it, that's still not knowledge. Like if, if I believe I'm going to win the lottery this year, and then I happen to win the lottery this year, that was not knowledge. I had no good reason to believe that I just, I just got lucky. But anyway, the story of the stargazer in the well is actually a, a digression within this dialogue. Uh, So I'm quoting from the uh, Fowler translation of of Plato here. So this is Socrates speaking, and and Socrates says, uh, take the case of Thales. He's speaking to somebody named Theodorus. Take the case of Thales, Theodorus. While he was studying the stars and looking upwards, he fell into a pit, sometimes translated as a well, and, uh, and a neat, witty Thracian servant girl jeered at him, they say, because he was so eager to know the things in the sky that he could not see what was there before him at his very feet. The same jest applies to all who pass their lives in philosophy. And you can't actually find these charges in their original form in uh, stuff like, uh, Rob, did you ever read The, the Clouds by Aristophanes, the, the play Mocking Socrates? Uh, no, I don't think I did. Oh yeah, well, so it's a whole play is just vicious, brutal mockery of uh, of Socrates and the school of philosophers of Athens, showing them to be absolute buffoons who are wasting their lives, uh, just making up garbage about trivial and unimportant topics. And so, in a way, I wonder if the, you know this is kind of responding to that fra- sort of criticism uh because yeah it's, it's the same kind of thing it's like oh you know you think you're so smart but you actually just fall into pits all the time or you, you mm-hmm. trip and fall in a well because you're trying to figure out uh, uh ursa major and ursa minor yeah nothing you do is practical
4: and here's right. the proof ha you're in the bottom of a well how'd you get there old man you must have tripped
3: it's also the classic oh philosophy major huh what are you going to do with that <laughs> And then, so Socrates goes on to explain his view. I've made some abridgments to this section, but uh, I just want to read uh, part of what he says. Socrates says, Hence it is, my friends, such a man, both in private when he meets with individuals and in public, as I said in the beginning, when he is obliged to speak in court or elsewhere about the things at his feet and before his eyes, is a laughingstock, not only to Thracian girls, but to the multitude in general. For he falls into pits and all sorts of perplexities through inexperience, and his awkwardness is terrible, making him seem a fool. For when it comes to abusing people, he has no personal abuse to offer against anyone, because he knows no evil of any man, never having cared for such things. So his perplexity makes him appear ridiculous, and as to laudatory speeches and the boastings of others, it becomes manifest that he is laughing at them, not pretending to laugh, but really laughing, and so he is thought to be a fool. When he hears a panegyric, uh, meaning like a sort of a a sermon praising the virtues of a public figure, Hmm. when he hears a panegyric of a despot or a king, he fancies he is listening to the praises of some herdsman, a swineherd, a shepherd, or a neat herd, for instance, who gets much milk from his beasts. But he thinks that the ruler tends and milks a more perverse and treacherous creature than the herdsman, and that he must grow coarse and uncivilized no less than they, for he has no legalism. And lives surrounded by a wall, as the herdsmen live in their mountain pens. And when he hears that someone is amazingly rich because he owns ten thousand acres of land or more, to him, accustomed as he is to think of the whole earth, this seems very little. Uh, and he goes on and on at length talking about how, uh, you know, the the common man might think himself uh, very important because he claims to trace his ancestry back to to Heracles and Amphitryon. Uh, and meanwhile, the philosopher is like, uh, but uh, but everybody has thousands of ancestors of all kinds. What does that matter? And so he just goes on and on listing all these cases of the concerns of regular people who are squabbling over like, uh, power and and money and prestige and hierarchy and the philosopher who seems to them to be a fool because he cares not for those things mm. Now I think it's interesting to sort of compare and contrast Aristotle's vision of the of Thales here versus uh, Socrates's vision of Thales both essentially assume that true philosophers and I think the modern reader might might sort of uh, read this in a more inclusive way, just as the thoughtful person, thoughtful people, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that they are above petty worldly concerns, but the olive press story communicates a kind of deliberate aloofness, which can be subverted and and cast aside any time when some wisecracker comes along and says, you know, like you said, Rob, Hey Thales, if you're so smart, how come you're not as rich as me? The point is here. Well, Thales could be if he wanted to. That's just not his concern. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the story told uh, in in the in Plato's dialogue here, Socrates makes it sound like falling into the ditch and being mocked by the Thracian girl. It does communicate the same kind of aloofness, but in a more helpless and involuntary mode, like. Well, okay, yeah, he might be so wrapped up in the stars that he falls into pits all the time and he's always ending up at the bottom of wells. But that's actually a sign of a virtuous mind concerned with the stars and concerned with the nature of reality rather than the nasty pettiness that occupies your mind, all of the, uh, the, the grubby business and politics and, and, uh, and social gossip and hierarchy that you're so obsessed with. Which is funny though, because it essentially comes down to these philosophers putting themselves at the top of a hierarchy and saying, mm-hmm. like, you know, my 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 life of the mind is inc- so much more virtuous than your existence.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in it's both a little cases, bit of
3: hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. In both cases, the the philosopher is is disconnected from this world, and uh, you know, it did, it basically just comes down to the nuances of what you're saying about that. Like, it's it's it's. uh they're disconnected from this world, yes, but if they wanted to game this world like other people, they could easily. Or, you know, even if they're falling down wells, it's like, yeah, uh, uh, he's not concerned with wells and pits.
3: Oh, you're so obsessed with the well thing.
4: Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting how this ties back in because, um, you know, Thales is said to be an individual who is very interested in the stars. Uh, here he is falling into a well and, you um, and indeed, some have looked at this. In particular, uh, that, that paper I cited earlier, and you also cited this author, uh, Patricia O'Grady, um, looks at this and, and says, "Yeah, this connection between an, an individual who is uh, who, who analyzes the stars and fall at a well that they fall into, perhaps this is uh, is also connected to the idea of a well being an observatory, and Thales may have." Uh, and again, we're dealing with second accounts and fictionalized and, mi- and mythologicalized versions of reality. Uh, but on some level, maybe you have this individual falling into a well because that's the kind of place that um, uh, that astronomers and philosophers go to. They're climbing to the bottom of a well to look up at the stars. And and I don't know. It kind of falls that 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 kind of just that basic vision. Uh, kind of falls into these uh,
3: these these views of philosophy uh, that we've been discussing. Well, another theme that emerges for me is just the the tenuous and artificial nature of the distinctions between practical and impractical knowledge. That mm-hmm. knowledge. Uh, that knowledge, which seems impractical today, may in several hundred years become incredibly practical. The yeah. astronomy and the geometry of, of these ancient Greek philosophers might have seemed absolutely ridiculous and, and of no practical use whatsoever to uh, to somebody at the time, but then they would sort of uh, be built upon in generations to form the foundation of all existing technology, navigational techniques, and you know everything like that.
4: Hmm, yeah, yeah. I'm also suddenly struck by how, uh, how one could conceivably compare uh, a stylite, a, uh, you know, an individual, like a hermit atop a pillar, uh, mm. to the idea of, a, of an astronomer crawling down to the bottom of a pit. Uh, you know, both are, are kind of, they're, they're removed from, from the surface world, from the, uh, from the affairs of man. And in either case, it's about, you know, contemplating things beyond the realm of man
3: this is funny I, I've thought of potentially doing something about the the stylite tradition on our on our show before I can't remember has it ever come up in an episode it was like it's a particular type of asceticism where mm-hmm. you would uh, you know you would subject yourself to just living at the top of a pillar <laughs> yeah so, yeah
4: I feel like it's come up I don't know if we did yeah I feel like it's come up at least once but I don't remember the context maybe when we were talking about the Diogenes and living among the dogs.
3: Oh, Diogenes the Cynic, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, living in a jar with some dogs, eating fava yeah. beans, <laughs> or not fava uh, lupins, I think. Okay, I'd forgotten about the bean consumption. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I've actually got a, a, a call to listeners. I'm curious if if you're somebody out there with uh, with a uh, good basis in astronomy and physics, um, what do you think is the most plausible scenario? by which Thales could have truly predicted the 585 eclipse? If the story is true, if he actually made the prediction, and it was not just a lucky guess, but actually justified true belief that he had a warrant for believing that, what could it have been?
4: Yeah, write in, let us know. Uh, Likewise, if you have any thoughts about the uh, the, the concept of, of glimpsing the stars from the bottom of a well, the bottom of a pit. Alright, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode but yeah, we'd love to hear from everyone. Uh, Core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind published on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Listener Mail on Mondays, Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesdays and on Friday we do Weird House
3: Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious
4: concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks as
3: always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
0: stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows